When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the mysteries and deeper meaning behind Hanukkah. The very climax of the apocalypse is the age of Hanukkah. The last three and a half years is going to be the age of Hanukkah. And the age of Hanukkah was an age where darkness began to, spiritual darkness crept in. It wasn't that people were conquered materially. They were, they were conquered by ruse and by deceit. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Happy Hanukkah documentary filmmaker and student of Bible prophecy, Ali Siadatan, is here to discuss the history and some Old Testament and New Testament prophecies relating to Hanukkah. He is the founder of Think Again Productions, a multimedia teaching ministry, shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge. In 2006, Think Again Productions released the groundbreaking documentary, UFOs, Angels, and Gods on Google Video, where it received over a quarter million views in nine months. His research into UFOs has inspired him to write a work of fiction still in progress, as well as a second documentary on the rise of the Antichrist titled, Goliath Rising, Hybrids, Nephilim, and Titans. Hey, Ali, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Fine, thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. We're just a few days into Hanukkah, which of course is celebrated by Jews the world over. Now, what is the traditional understanding of what Hanukkah is all about? Um, the traditional understanding is that you know, there was a miracle that happened, uh, uh, you know, the candlestick, or the menorah, as the Jews call it. Uh, there was some oil that was, you know, hidden uh, because the temple had some problems. The Greeks had arrived, and uh, there were some problems with the temple, and the, some oil was hidden, and when everything was fixed and it was time to open, turn the light back on and you know reignite the, the, the light of God and the candle in the temple, there wasn't enough oil, 
Um, but somehow the oil kept reproducing itself and was able to go on for eight whole days, uh, uh, which is, you know, a biblical number that, you know, seven is an entire cycle, eight is a new beginning. It signifies a new beginning. Something was rededicated, a new start started, and somehow this oil, you know, kind of went on. That's that's kind of the the traditional story of a miracle of, of the reproducing oil that lit back the candlesticks of the temple. Right, which is why there are eight eight candles in a menorah for the eight days that the lamp remained lit, although there was supposedly only oil enough for one. And this supposedly happened when the Jews reclaimed the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes. Yes. And this happened in the second century BC. But that's not really what happened during Hanukkah, is it? Exactly. There's more to it than the miracle of reproducing oil, even though that really captures a spirit of, you know, a, a light that was extinguished and makes a huge comeback and reestablishes itself. And even the miraculous hand of God was involved in the resurrecting of, of an extinguished light. In that sense, you know, it really captures it. But there was something very uh, profound, something very deep, and something that was even prophesied uh, by the prophet Daniel uh, several centuries before the whole event even occurred. Something very important was happening, uh, and what that was was that the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was from the Seleucid dynasty, uh, when when Alexander of Macedon, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, defeated the Persian Empire and established. Uh, the Greek Empire uh, over the world, after his death, his empire was divided into four divisions headed by four generals, and one of them was Seleucid. And this is one of the sons of the Seleucids in the year, let's say, just to keep it simple, 170 BC. You know, in that, in that period of time, that's when the story is happening. Um, about, about, you know, let's say 200 years before the time of Christ, roughly, if just to just so that our minds can easily you know take us to, to the setting. This general comes in to the uh, Judean hillsides where Jerusalem is, and because the northern kingdom uh, controls that area, uh, the southern kingdom is another uh, you know kingdom that comes from Egypt. But he comes from the north, and he kind of slowly starts to win over. Uh, portions of you know he, Israeli society, um, you know he he's he's a he, a great uh, king. He, he's connecting them to a larger world, and gradually he says, you know what, let's make some changes, even in the way the temple is set up, in, even in the way the worship of God is set up. Um, why don't we make it a little bit more Greek? Why don't we make, make it a little bit more like the way that my God works, which his God was Zeus. He was a devout worshiper of Zeus. And uh, why don't you just stop sacrificing to your God? These would be two daily sacrifices, and we're talking about the second temple now. Yes, that's right. He's taking, that's right, take the daily sacrifices away. And um, this is the second temple period. uh, And they say no. So he, he he does some political intrigue, and he replaces the priesthood. Um, He takes down those who oppose him, and he uh, promotes other priests to the rank of high priest. Jason becomes a high priest. He promotes others to the rank of high priest who are willing to work with him. And this new leadership that emerges out of the priesthood of Israel, but is sympathetic 
to the cause of Antiochus agrees. So the, so the priesthood he, has he been, the entire priesthood has been Hellenized in a sense. Yes. It's, it's an interesting yes. an interesting contrast to the way the Romans previously uh, would have handled it, right? Because the Romans were more, I would think, kind of brute force, my way or the highway, uh, my way or the sword. Uh, whereas yeah, well, yes. the Greeks, uh, the Antiochus Epiphanes seems to be using, as you say, kind of subterfuge and persuasion. Yes, and and that I think is what you know Daniel had even prophesied about him that he would be exactly that kind of a man that he would come and that it would be kind of by ruse and by deceit, you know, that, that he would, he would do this very thing. Um, it, it says that about him in chapter 11, uh, of the, the scroll of the prophet Daniel, um, you know, people can kind of read from verse 20 to verse 36. It talks about Antiochus and it describes him as such a man. Now the Romans came after this period and the Romans continued this. So uh, at the time of Jesus, the priesthood was appointed by imperial Rome, and there was the ha- house of Aeneas who had ascended to the, to, you know, uh, to the priesthood, but he was appointed by the Roman legate uh, Quirinus as the first high priest of the newly formed Roman province of Judea in 6 AD. Um, and, and he ruled, uh, you know, until uh, for ten years, uh, and then he was deposed at the age of thirty-six by, by the pro, uh, procurator Valerius Gratus, um, who then appointed Caiaphas, his son-in-law, to become the high priest. And we believe it was the son of Caiaphas, you know, that is usually featured in the Passion Plays as the one, uh, you know, that that was dealing with Jesus. And the Bible talks about Caiaphas, and it talks about Aeneas. And these guys were ruling at the time of Jesus, and they were both appointed by two different governors of the Judean ah. uh, province. And so this, this continued into the time of Jesus, and Jesus was like this Messiah, and he was a king, and he was in some ways as cast as a character who was challenging um, the peaceful governance that was in alignment with imperial rule. Okay, so let's and get back he, to... Was, you know, Get back to Antiochus yeah. then, uh, and so he convinces the high priests in the Second Temple to do away with the two daily sacrifices, and then Antiochus imposes his own form of worship there. Uh, exactly what was that? Um, he says, uh, let's worship Zeus, essentially. So he erects an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, which is the very center of the structure of the temple. Um, and the temple basically was like a series of, like a big rectangle with smaller squares in it. The, the, the general world was represented by the general world, but then you entered into the outer court, and this is kind of the, the first stage of a person coming to God, approaching God, and then there was the inner court, and then there was the very center, the Holy of Holies, where God himself manifested and where God, you know, existed, and no one could go in there but the high priest, and only on the Day of Atonement. Right, and that's where the um, Ark was. That's where the Ark was during the first temple period. The, uh, that's, that's where the glory would descend, the, sh- the presence of God would descend during the first temple period on the Day of Atonement. This, this, this 
energy, this man, you know, whatever it was, the Shekhinah was called, this transfer of the glory, would descend inside of there. And he goes in there and he says, why don't we put a idol to my god, Zeus, which some people believe is actually the biblical Satan. Why don't we put a, an idol to Zeus in here? And there was the mercy seat, which represents, you know, ultimately the seat uh, of the sacrifice of the Son of God, and also becomes the place where he sits to rule, eventually becomes also his throne. And he says, why don't we sacrifice a pig, a swine, on the mercy seat, which was a extremely, you know, unkosher animal, and that would make the mercy seat uh, dysfunctional. You could no longer uh, do sacrifices, and in effectively he killed the entire worship of the system of God, uh, the, the worship system of the God of Israel by desecrating it and sacrificing a pig and then by erecting an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and then he sent these chariots with idols to the different Judean towns and asked the different people to bow to them and sacrifice to them. So he completely, um, when we say Hellenized in that, in that period of time, it means something different today because, because the Greeks became Christians. Uh, but in that, in those periods, what it means is that he brought the worship of the gods and replaced it uh, with the, the worship of God was replaced by the worship of the gods uh, and, and Zeus at the helm of them. So he basically spiritually took over the priesthood and through the priesthood, he took over spiritually the spiritual soul of the nation. Wow. Now, um, this was, as you mentioned earlier, prophesied by Daniel some 300, some three centuries earlier. Um, and so what what was Daniel, what was he predicting would happen? Did he name uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, or did he just say that he would come from, I don't know, the East, or the, I mean the West, or what, what did he say? He gave many, 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 many clues. And these clues are found, for those who may want to read it, in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. Um, and, as uh, uh, you know, from verse kind of 1 to 13 or 14. And in chapter 11, uh, from verse 20 to 35. Um, he, he said that he came from, you know, one of the divisions of the um, Alexander's kingdom. It said that he came from the north. Um, and... Um, it described in great detail, in great detail, the battles between the, the, the Seleucid Empire and the empire that was in the south from Egypt, the two, the two kind of uh, ends of Alexander's kingdom, the northern and southern one. It described battles between them in great detail to the point where this Greek, Greek philosopher centuries later said, oh, this must have been written after the fact. There's no way that Daniel could have you know, hundreds of years before predicted in such great detail the intrigues of these two kingdoms. And then the book gives very specific, prophetic, uh, precise points about these events. It says, for instance, um, uh, that that the uh, sacrifice will cease, the daily sacrifice will be forsaken because of rebellion, the sanctuary will be surrendered and the host be trampled uh, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, which essentially is 1,150 days, which is three and a half years, then the sanctuary will be vindicated, or some translations have it as cleansed. So it gave kind of a period of time where it would be desecrated, and then it would, it would talk about it being cleansed or rededicated. And that's what 
exactly the feast of Hanukkah is, and Jesus himself attended Hanukkah. It says that in uh, John chapter 10. Other things it said about this that I find interesting, it said in chapter 11 of Daniel, his forces will rise up and profane the fortified temple. They will stop the daily sacrificing and set up the abomination of desolation, which is the, the, the idol of Zeus. With smooth words, he will seduce those who act wickedly against the covenant, but the people who know their God will stand strong and prevail, Daniel said. Those who are wise among the people will instruct many, though for many days they will fall by the sword or be burned, captured, or pillaged. So he talked about two factions inside of Israel, those who kind of would be seduced by him and those who would allow this desolation of abomination to stand in the temple and those who would stand up against him and who would instruct their fellow uh, Jews, Judeans, to also stand up and would kind of bring words of wisdom. What's interesting, though, is that Daniel, at the time of this, when he's writing and prophesying, he and the rest of the of, of the Jews are enslaved in Babylon, and the first temple has been destroyed. There isn't even a second temple yet, so that even makes his prophecy even more remarkable. Exactly, uh, that he's talking about events that will happen in the second temple that hasn't even been built because Daniel is living in the fifth century before Christ, and these events are happening 107 years before Christ. So. Daniel is several hundred years before these events, giving us very precise clues about, you know, the, this, this. So this must have been very important to God uh, for him to really pour into Daniel all of this knowledge and all of this vision concerning the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and by the way, when you look at the prophecy, it talks about the king of the north, which is the uh, Seleucid and the king of the south, Ptolemy. And it's written from the point of view of a man standing in Jerusalem. Even though Daniel, as you said, was in Babylon and Persia when he was writing this, specifically he was in the city of Shushan in Iran, where he's buried and his tomb is there for people to visit to this day. Yet the prophecy is written from the point of view of a person standing in the city of, of Jerusalem, uh, seeing the enemies come from the north, seeing the enemies come from the south, seeing a battle between the two, seeing the king of the north enter into Jerusalem and come up with this ploy to spiritually bring darkness into the light and corrupt the mind of, of the devout people in Israel and extinguish the very light of the temple and the sacrifices that were offered to God. And at this time in history, Jerusalem really was the only per place where the God of gods was worshipped and where his temple stood. It wasn't like today. Uh, where things have changed, obviously, since right. the time of Christ. Right, so, and, and Daniel is also talking about this uh, this revolt that happens because the, the temple will be restored and rededicated after a period of 300 and something days, was it? Well, it's just 2,000. 2,000. In this, in the 2,300 days and evenings, evenings and, and days, and people have different ways of counting that. They go, okay, it's counting the specific evening and days, like it's saying one, two, one, two, which means that if you have to divide it by two to get the number of days. 
And so 2,300 divided by two is 1,150 days. And, and there are many, 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 many other prophecies, uh, both in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, that talk about a three-and-a-half-year period. And this one seems to also be pointing to a three-and-a-half-year period of desolation of the temple. Why is it written in this way? Um, you know, unless God reveals to us, he had a purpose. Of, uh, so some people say, well, because actually it's talking about how the temple would be desecrated for 2,300 years. It's a symbolic way of speaking, you know, until the third temple is built. And like it's giving a clue into, into the period of desecration. It's a code. God is speaking in a code. But there is enough passages, both in Daniel and in Revelation, that talk about, you know, a period of three and a half years. For instance, in chapter 12 in, of the book of Daniel, the very next chapter, it says, from the time that the daily burnt offering is taken away, an abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. And so that, that, that is three and a half years. And, and so that the passage in chapter 12 that talks about the desolation being set up and the sacrifice being ceased for 1,290 days corresponds to other passages in the Bible that speak the same thing. Um, even the book of Revelation talks about it, that this is going to happen. So we have to understand that this is a pattern. This is uh, something that happened at a time of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, but it is a pattern that is going to repeat itself at another time in in uh, in the future. Uh, and so the three and a half years are really brought to our attention by God in so many different passages, in so many different ways. And each time God uses a different way of talking about time, there must be a hidden meaning, right. not all of which has yet been understood. But but what is happening in the second century BC, and again, so Daniel prophesizes that after the abomination of the desolation, the uh, sacrifices will stop for 2,300 days, or 1,100 and evenings. And, evenings. Uh, and then meanwhile, after the actual abomination of the desolation in the second century, it is almost precisely 2,300 days and evenings when the revolt takes place, the Maccabean revolt, they take back the temple from the Greeks and, re and rededicate the temple to God, right? God. Yeah, and that's where the miracle in a way is, you know, this idea of a miracle that happened that, you know, the... They, there was one um, giant candlestick in the first temple. In the second temple, the book of Maccabees talks about the candlesticks in plural. It says, you know, that the candlesticks were turned on, the candlesticks were turned off. So the story is, is that, you know, some of these priests that, that disagreed, and the book of Maccabees, you know, names the priests that agreed and the ones that disagreed, and the ones that agreed all have Greek names. And the ones that disagreed all have Hebrew names, even though they are all Hebrews. But again, it points to where their heart and mind men have been aligned to. And again, the world of the Greeks here is not the Christian Greece that we know of today. It is the world of the, 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 of the Judeo, of the Greco-Roman world that is under the control of Zeus and Jupiter and of the gods, which, which many consider to be the fallen angels. So this whole idea... Um, uh, of the miracle is, is that a small group of priests headed by 
uh, Judah Maccabee, and his name is Hammer, and it was, he was like a hammer, you know, um, with his sons. He gathered a group of, you know, hillbillies, basically, that were going to take on this imperial force of Antiochus Epiphanes with his latest armament and the latest training and the latest shields and the latest spears and swords. And they won. And, and they, they ambushed them in the Judean hillside as they were walking on these narrow paths. These guys would hide in the hills and they would they, run down and attack them from the side. And these uh, Greek flank, uh, phalanx, could not so easily turn right or left. They were more designed for open field warfare rather than hillside, narrow path warfare. And, and these, the Maccabeans, you know, they took advantage of this weakness and they attacked from the side and they, they destroyed enough of them. And somehow, again, this was a spiritual battle. They were able to push, you know, these guys back um, in, in, and, and reclaimed the temple. I mean, if you kind of look at the prophecies that talk about this character, it says uh, that, and it grew great even to the host of heaven, this, this little horn that he's sometimes called in chapter 8 of Daniel. He grew great even to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. So it kind of presents him as a character that has some sort of a spiritual power behind him because he's able to um, even cast down the stars of heaven, which is an idiom for angels, that there was some sort of a spiritual warfare behind the scenes that allowed Antiochus Epiphanes to enter Jerusalem and carry this thing out. It's as though the angels that were guarding things on the, on the good side were kind of shot down first by the angels on the other side, the fallen angels. And this is what opened the door for Antiochus Epiphanes to enter because the book of Daniel is a book that talks often about the powers and principalities that are behind these empires and behind the Jewish people. It talks about Michael being behind them. And then there's this kind of a fight. And this story is woven into the prophecies. So the Maccabeans were inspired, it seems, by God to have the the strategy to defeat these guys. And and perhaps, you know, the angels of God were, were fighting on their side as well. And so they were able to push back. As you were describing the Maccabean uh, revolt, it reminded me of, it's almost like guerrilla warfare tactics because you had, as you you call them, sort of like hillbillies. They were not professionally trained soldiers and yet they came up against this seemingly unbeatable force. It reminds me of the American Revolution. You had the the Redcoats. No one thought for a second that these colonists could, could defeat the greatest standing army in the world, the British Empire. Uh, and but yet, but they used guerrilla warfare tactics. That's right. The 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 uh, it's surprising how Napoleon also was able to defeat all the armies of Europe through unconventional warfare. They were their armies were set up for a type of warfare that they all in a way agreed by convention to fight that way. Napoleon came and said, "Forget convention. I'm going to fight in a whole new way." And he even created new cannons. And, you know, and all kinds of new weapons that could be moved around the field very quickly. And that's what uh, usually gives you victories, the element of surprise and unorthodox warfare. And these guys, you know, were able to pull it off, and they pushed the Antiochus back. They rededicated the temple. And in Hebrew, dedicating, dedication is Hanukkah. Hanukkah, it means, it means dedication. That's, what, that's all it means. 
they rededicated the temple, if you will. You know, it means dedication, but in some ways they rededicated the temple to God. They turned the sacrificial system back on, cleansed the um, Holy of Holies by removing the, all the idol to Zeus, and uh, uh, turned the candlesticks, which represented the light of God. Um, they turned it back on, and again, everything was functioning and something strange happened yet you know the good guys uh came came up on top and life continued now and the, prophecy was fulfilled right right because again this was all predicted 300 years earlier by daniel um in great detail and then and so we have um hammer maccabee is this where we get the uh, the expression it's hammer time <laughs> Perhaps not, but I like it. <laughs> well, it, it was indeed hammer time. So um, now that brings us to Matthew, the book of Matthew. And, yes. and Jesus yes. is being asked, when shall we look for your return, the second coming? And Jesus explains, and he, he references Hanukkah again, right? Yes, he, he references this, this period of Jewish history because he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when you will see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then, you know, you want to flee Judea. He, he goes into a speech of what they ought to do when they see such a thing stand in the holy place. And the Gospel of Matthew, of all the Gospels, is very much written to the Jewish people, and it presents Jesus as the as the Mashiach, the King, the Christ, and and it gives kind of his you know genealogy to to through Joseph. Um, it's his legal genealogy, and like you know, Luke gives his his biological genealogy through Mary, because it presents him mainly as a man, uh, and and John presents him as as God incarnate, and by starting by saying, hey, this was you know God became about flesh and walked among us. And Mark doesn't even include um, his genealogy because it presents him as a servant. And these are the four things that he was. He was a god, he was man, he was a, a, a servant, and he was a king. And Matthew is very much speaking to the Jewish people. It's the most Jewish of all the Gospels, and it was written by a Levi. That's who Matthew is. He is a Levi. And um, he meets Jesus, you know, in Galilee because he had left Jerusalem because he was so tired of the temple. He felt it was super corrupt by these, you know, these uh, Roman, Roman chosen high priests and all of that. And he had gone as far from the temple as he could possibly go to the very north to Galilee, where it was the boundary of Israel. And he was working as a tax collector for the Romans, which was a despicable job from a Jewish point of view. And each time Jesus had to leave Galilee and go to the province next door that was run by Herod's brother, he had to pay taxes at Matthew's uh, office. And that's how he met Matthew. But he was a Levi, and he wrote this book. And in this gospel, he records these words of the Messiah. And so Jesus does something incredible. He resurrects this prophecy that everyone thought was all done. You know, Daniel had spoken about the events that, that of, the, of, of Hanukkah that, you know, uh, that happened in the time of the Maccabean revolt. The temple was rededicated. It was gone. It was done. And now everyone remembered it once a year and celebrated. Even right. Jesus. The, prophe captured, the know, prophecy was fulfilled. The prophecy was fulfilled. Was fulfilled. Right. Right. Jesus suddenly reaches back into that period of Jewish history that is prophesied by Daniel and recorded in the Bible. And he says, no, 
this is not completely done. This was a this was the dr- dress rehearsal. This was a small event talking about something much larger that would, in its center, in its core, resemble very much these events, but it was going to happen in the future of Israel, not in the past. And with, the, with that simple statement, Jesus turns the story of Hanukkah, the age of Hanukkah, the age of the dedication and the prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes into a type of a future event. And this is very common, a way that God speaks in the Bible. More of my conversation with Ali Siadatan when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. C60 Evo's Miracle Molecule ESS60 makes a great gift for conscious people and their pets. Why not give the gift of radiant health to everyone on your list this Christmas? ESS60, the powerful antioxidant, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory in a bottle. ESS60 is the purest form of C60 available anywhere from C60 Evo. Benefits include increased strength, flexibility, immunity, and better sleep. Go to my C60 Evo landing page right now and check out the great gift sets now available at special holiday discount prices. C60Evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. C60Evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Take 15% off your order with the coupon code Jolly15RS. That's Jolly15RS through to the end of the year. Again, Jolly15RS earns you 15% off your order. It's the evolution of Carbon 60, ESS60 from C60 Evo. Give the gift of great health this Christmas. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Or go to my website strangeplanet.ca and click on the ad for C60 Evo. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions is here. We're discussing Hanukkah and a prophecy from Jesus told in the book of Matthew about how the end times will coincide with the age of Hanukkah. And so this coming event, which is tied into the second coming, refers to the Antichrist, who, according to some interpretations, will enter the third temple which has not yet been constructed at some point in the future, and he'll enter the Holy of Holies, the Antichrist, and declare himself to be king of the Jews and will again recreate the abomination of the, of the desolation. Well, you know, in, in the very book of Daniel, in the chapters that are around, you know, the, 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 it's kind of like a, like a carpet, you know, a, like, a, you know, like a Persian carpet where you have different themes woven into the tapestry. Around the same parts uh, that, that Daniel talks about Antiochus Epiphanes, all around it, in the chapters that are before and after it, 
we have another character introduced who is also called a little horn, the way that Antiochus Epiphanes was called a little horn. And, but he's a distinct character, and he also you know, declares war against God. It says that about him. Again, it ha- it, there's a spiritual component to his rule. It's, he's not just you know, your regular dictator. He's got some sort of a beef with God, and, he, and he, it talks about how he challenges the rule of heaven. He, he again has this angelic you know, um, uh, warfare side to his rule. And he also ceases, you know, ceases the sacrifice for three and a half years. It says that about him as well in the book of Daniel. And then Jesus comes and in a way sets all of those passages in fire and connects it to the Antiochus uh, story and says, no, this is going to happen again. Daniel has already talked about him in many other passages. And even the story of Antiochus is a type. It's all going to point and culminate. And then Paul comes uh, later when he is um, talking to the people in Thessaloniki, uh, which is a town that he had been a missionary, a Jewish missionary to the Thessalonians. He had gone from Israel proclaiming the Messiah uh, to them and bringing the monotheistic faith of the Jews to them. And many in Thessaloniki had believed in this, you know, uh, in Paul and they were asking him, they wrote a letter to him that we don't have. In that letter, they said to him, you know, is, is the persecution that the Christians are facing and this particular Roman emperor that's risen over us, is this, is this this character that, that Daniel talked about, that Jesus talked about as well? And Paul responds to them, um, and he says, um, he says to them, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, by our gathering together unto him, like we're going to be lifted up, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that day, as that the day of the Lord is present. He's saying, don't worry, don't worry. This is not the time. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come the falling away first, which means many people in who are believers in this in this way are going to actually fall away in a way kind of like the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so suddenly, in this letter, Paul throws this huge piece of information to us that builds on this entire thought structure that Daniel had already set up that had been fulfilled during the time of Antiochus, but yet there was another man also that Daniel spoke of, and Jesus had resurrected these teachings, saying it's going to happen in the future, there's going to be another abomination of desolation in the holy place, Jesus had said. Paul then comes and says, well, this is a guy. It's a guy. And the Roman Empire emperor that you see over you right now that's pursuing the Christian, he's not the guy, because first there's going to be a falling away. Right now the faith is growing, and people are coming by, by thousands and hundreds of thousands to the faith. But there's going to be in the future a time where people are actually going to have their hearts cold and fallen away. And then this particular character is going to exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, so like an idol, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he's God. He's saying to them, until you see that, 
that's the the antichrist it hasn't been revealed so he's building on the words of jesus but he adds one more clue to to the whole thing he says the abomination of desolation is a guy who will enter the temple and who will ask to be worshipped he adds a whole new layer to this this thought that has been building and building as god is gradually through successive prophets revealing it to us and and then paul continues and says he shall um um and then shall that wicked one be revealed whom the lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him whose coming is after the working of satan with all power and signs and lying wonders so he's going to do miracles he's going to have a spiritual backing like Antiochus is, is, is seems to have had, because it says that about him in chapter 8, and like the, the other character that Daniel talks about, who is this Antichrist that Paul is talking about, also uh, in, in the writings of Daniel, it says, it says very clearly that he has backing, he has power behind him. And here, this guy has some sort of a spiritual backing to the point where he's able to perform miracles, and then he enters the holy place. And so, based on the teachings of Jesus, about the holy place and receiving the abomination of desolation and the teachings of Paul talking about this man of perdition walking in, inside of the temple and being worshipped. And in the book of Revelation, for instance, it talks about how the temple, there's going to be another temple that describes it, and then it says that a portion of the temple mount is measured and given to the Gentiles. And we know the Muslims today you know, lay a claim to that piece of property. And so some people say, well, that is the portion that's given to them. But as part of the final settlement between the Jews and the Muslims, there may be uh, some negotiation that involves this very important property. And so... Well, there there is the the Temple Institute in Israel, which has raised hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, largely from evangelical Christians who, who, who want the Third Temple to be built because they want to, I guess, hasten the... The arrival of you know the second coming. They have to, these things have to be put in place in order for the second coming. Um, however, um, I, I've talked a number of times to uh, Pastor Carl Gallops, who you you know as well, and um, he ac- actually has quite an interesting al- alternate take on that. He doesn't, based on the, his contacts in Israel. Uh, he says there is zero interest for building the third temple in Israel. Uh, so, is it possible that it's that the the Antichrist is not going to enter literally a third temple and and recreate the abomination of the desolation? Uh, is it possible that the temple refers to something else? It's a metaphor. Well, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, there's kind of suddenly a change in the idea of this meeting place between man and God that is so pervasive in the writings of Moses. In fact, it's the thing that's mentioned the most in the books of Moses, this tent of meeting, the Mishkan, because God is so eager to meet with each one of us and dwell with us. In the New Covenant, Jesus makes the proclamation, destroy this temple and I shall rebuild it in three days. And later we realize that it's talking about himself, that he will die and come back to life in three days. And so... Uh, Paul continues to say that the body, your body, has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because when you offer in your inner temple a sacrifice, when you offer Jesus 
as your sacrifice to the Father in your heart and mind through faith, then you are cleansed in his blood and the Spirit of God then comes and dwells inside of you and that makes you a temple because God's Spirit in the Old Testament can only descend, you know, inside of the this Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, even though it would cover certain individual people like kings and prophets. Um, but it wasn't like in the New Testament where it is available to anyone who proclaims Jesus as a sacrifice. And so in the New Testament, in the New Covenant period, the human body becomes a temple, and Peter builds on this idea and says that we are the mystical body of Christ, that all of the Christians put together, and the Holy Spirit that indwells the assemblies of, of Christ, this is in fact the new temple in which the Holy Spirit is living, uh, because it's one of the manifestations of God, and he, He's living in the body of believers, and therefore we form this mystical body of Christ. Right. So, in other words, and the, so it changes things. Yeah. So the Antichrist may, in fact, come into when it says the temple, it, like the, the 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 Christian church. He may he may arise within the Christian church. Well, that's a very interesting point. So I would say that they are both true because. They are extensions of each other in this sense, that um, basically everything that has happened prophetically so far seems to be literal, even though for a long time we thought it wasn't going to be literal, but then suddenly Israel in 1948 was born in one night, like it says in Isaiah 66, that a nation was born you know, overnight. Um, Jerusalem in 1967 becomes part of the Hebrew Commonwealth, and suddenly all these prophecies that talk about nations gathering against Jerusalem, suddenly it's possible to take these literally. The Jews are literally back in this land, like it was spoken by Ezekiel and, and other prophets. Um, everything that the Bible ever speaks about when it talks about the future from the very beginning in the book of Genesis onwards is always the literal future of the actual past, and it, it actually comes true. Like the story of Antiochus Epiphanes, the greatest details that were given to us literally occurred, even the fact that there would be some wise people that would rebel against those um, you know, who would fall for him and all that. Was, such great details was given. So, so overwhelmingly, it seems that the Bible is, is, is eager to tell us what's going to happen as it's going to happen. And when Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, says, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place, it really seems like it's a warning to those who are living directly in the hillsides of Judea and in Jerusalem. He says, flee Judea in the next verse. So he's really talking to people that live there. So we would have to assume that those who live in Judea at the time of the Antichrist they have to sit in their minds and, and go through this metaphor system you explained to me and say, okay, I think what Jesus really meant, you know, I'm just a Jew, I believe in Jesus, maybe I don't believe in Jesus, but I just suddenly this verse came to me in this time of desperation. I must understand that actually the temple is now represented by the Christian church of the Gentiles worldwide, and this guy who they love and have adopted and they believe in somehow, this is actually what Jesus was talking about. Oh, I should now leave Judea for some reason. Okay, it, it's too complicated. Right, it doesn't make right. sense. Clearly, he's talking to them about an event that will concern their immediate geography and their immediate future in the context of a prophetic system that is always literally happening. So I don't, I don't see why this one event suddenly wouldn't be literal when, and be spiritualized when everything else has been literal. However, I do find it interesting that 
in um, uh, modern times, there has been a very interesting connection between the revival of Israel and spiritual upheaval in the church. When you look at 1948 and you look at the environmental records, even the temperature, even the weather of Israel changes drastically in 1948. It was a desolate desert land and it turns into a place that has a lot more rain. There's a huge uptick in rain and rain in the Bible represents the blessing of God and the word of God. It rains from heaven. It's living waters. Even the baptisms must, must always happen in, in lakes, what, spring water and rainwater, living water, the waters that come from the hand of God, not just like the faucet water. And so this is a change that happens, and the Jewish people start to come back to Israel, and the land comes to life. The land that was cursed, like uh, Mark Twain talks about it. It, it, it comes to life. It becomes a place that exports agriculture, and, and the cities are rebuilt, and the land comes to life. And around the same time, the church that had for a long time been just very institutional and organizational, around the same time that this movement has started, you know, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the church starts to turn back on in a whole new way. We start to have the Spirit talked about more, the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, miracles, healings. And suddenly we start to get massive, massive amounts of revelation. We are understanding the Bible in ways that no generation of the church has understood it, are just the amount of the, how the Bible is opening up to us today is, is incredible. And so I see that there's a connection as the blessing is, is restored, and when the Messiah comes in that land eventually at the second coming and establishes his kingdom out of Jerusalem, there will be peace in the entire world and among the nations. So what happens in that land spiritually and, and how the physical manifestations of the geography and of the history of that land, in a way, echo the spiritual changes that are happening in the back scene, in the in, in, in behind the scenes, pour into the body of Christ. Because the, the Gentile, the, the, the believers in Christ, it says in the book of Romans, have been grafted into the Jewish olive tree through the Messiah. And so what happens there affects us. So yes, I think that when he stands in that temple... And part of the Jewish leadership, like in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, bows to him, and that's why he can actually do what he does. The same will happen, like in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, there'll be a group of the Christian leadership that will think he's very cool, and that why not, why not get along? He's bringing the whole world together, and he has this incredible, miraculous powers behind him, it seems. And so this will echo into the church, into that spiritual temple of which you speak and of the new covenant speaks about. And we will mirror, in a way, what is happening in the Holy Land and what is happening among the Jewish people. The way that we are mirroring, you know, the blessings that they are receiving it is also pouring into us. So in that sense, I would say that the literal view is the foundation, because that's how Scripture is, and it extends into the Gentile, you know, into the body of Christ, into the spiritual temple. And therefore, I would say that the good pastor is not wrong, but for him to omit the, the foundational, literal view goes against kind of what Scripture has taught us so far about prophecy, and, and the words of Jesus would no longer make complete sense. Okay. However, now, I can see that it would echo into the Church. All right, so... Let's get back to Hanukkah. I just finished speaking with uh, the author or co-author of a book about battle strategies, you know, preparing ourselves for Armageddon. 
And so, you know, the idea that we are in the end times and and that that Jesus referenced Hanukkah uh, in reference to the end times, what does Hanukkah, what is it supposed to be teaching the believer uh, in the end times? What, what, what are we supposed yeah. to do with this story? Great question. You know, the, um, uh, Jesus said that there'll be great tribulation like there's never been before, and it's three and a half years, and that was three and a half years that Antiochus Epiphanes did what he did. And so the, 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 the very climax of the apocalypse is the age of Hanukkah. The th- last three and a half years uh, uh, is going to be the age of Hanukkah. And the age of Hanukkah was an age where darkness began to, spiritual darkness crept in. It wasn't that people were conquered materially. They were, they were conquered by ruse and by deceit. It wasn't as, like you say, later when the Romans came, they destroyed the temple. This, this guy didn't come that way. And so we are, we are to understand that the Antichrist will come by deception. That's why Jesus in Matthew 24 begins and ends his speech with the words, with the admonition, don't be deceived. So it's going to be time of deception. And we see, we see that this has already started, that many, many uh, Judeo-Christian ideas in our culture are being reversed. And there is kind of darkness coming into the world. Uh, and a lot of people who believe in the Lord in faith and in heart uh, aren't really getting their inspiration from what is written in the Word of God. They're getting it from culture. And the culture is being transformed right before our eyes, and that is being magnified through the media and through social media, and people thinking about reality is being altered. So what teaching Hanukkah is, is that the lampstand represents people, and the oil represents the Spirit of God. And yes, we are the temple, and inside of our hearts, we must begin by dedicating ourselves to the Lord. We must dedicate our inner temple and dedicate our hearts to God, and in that way, make sure we are cleansed and the light is shining bright in us and in our minds, and we are being informed and inspired from the Word of God. And then we shine like these candlesticks. The Lord said, be the light of the world, be the salt of the earth. And that's what Antiochus, you know, exactly attacked. He attacked that light and that salt. He didn't destroy it. He corrupted it. And so we want to make sure that we're pure and undedicated to the world and dedicated to God and that we are offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God, like Paul says, and that we are then informing ourselves of God's perspective and God's moral code and God's values and God's teachings and God's prophecies. And then we are shining that into the world of our family and our neighbors, and into our government, and into our media, and into our arts and entertainment, into every sphere that we can touch because of who we are. We're not like going and hitting people on the head of the Bible, but we are simply being these lights that shine into the darkness. And the greater the darkness, the the brighter the light can shine. And that is why I think this festival is celebrated in the winter. And I think that everything that's in the Bible is by strategy. And the New Testament, it says in John chapter 10, verse 22, that it was the Feast of Dedication and Jesus was there in the winter. It says that. It says in the winter. And I think because the winter is the darkest time of the year and this is the festival of light. So it really contrasts the darkness of deception with the lightness of God. And we are to be the lights. I think that's the main teaching here. The website is thinkagainproductions.com, and you also, from time to time, hold some online uh, webinars. What can you tell us about that? Yes, right now I'm promoting. Anyone can sign up. If people already emailed in, I've got tons of emails. I'm going to give you a study of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, 
and I'm going to do, start by doing a study of the first three chapters, which are seven letters written to seven congregations in Asia Minor. I'm going to open up these seven letters for people and kind of kickstart the study of the book of Revelation. And if people really like it and enjoy it and, and, and want to continue, then we, you know, we, could, we could continue in that book. And so basically go to my website, thinkingandproductions.com, watch the documentary that's there, sign up for the newsletter on the first page, you can, you know, and feel free to leave a donation if you wish. And if you want to go to the YouTube channel by double-clicking the documentary, you can also sign up for the YouTube channel. There's a bunch of series of videos that are coming. But sign up for the newsletter. That's how you'll be informed about everything that I'm doing. Ali, always uh, insightful, and I always learn so much when you're on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. It's that time of the week to welcome back Colleen Forgus, our nutritional consultant and the manager of our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Colleen, welcome back. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Do we have anything at the Full Script Dispensary to help people maintain regularity? Yes, we do. And this is one of the best things that we can do for our health to make sure that we're using the restroom daily. So there's a product called Colon RX by Designs for Health. This product can be used as a mild laxative anytime someone is having a bout of constipation. And it's also something that can be used on a daily basis, kind of like a maintenance to help ensure that you're very regular and are moving your bowels every day. That's important. All right, so to stay regular, get Colon RX from the Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Full Script button. And don't forget, subscribers receive a 10% discount on all products and free delivery on all orders over $50. Talk again next week, Colleen. I will look forward to it, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, the director of the We the People Convention in Ohio discusses why his group took out a full-page ad in the Washington Times newspaper demanding President Trump declare limited martial law. Declaring martial law literally stops everything. It stops the courts. It stops you know any legal action. And then the president can say to the military, I want you to come up with a plan to put this vote forward. So they can decide this is how we're all going to do it. We're going to, you know, you're going to use paper. These are this, the paper it's going to be on. These are the machines you're going to print the paper with. And so they can organize it. If you don't declare martial law, unfortunately, in the United States, President Trump just said today, you know what? We need to make the people comfortable with this election. Let's have a revote. There would be 700 lawsuits filed in the United States by the end of today. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.